anything from the pulpit and uh, should be on the kingdom. But we've been doing a series on uh, the government of the kingdom and how the kingdom actually uh, comes and how you can relate to spiritual authority. And we spent, I think I spent three or four, five weeks talking about the gift of prophecy and the office of a prophet and the fivefold ministry. And I want to kind of take off from some of that. And, you know, um, we talked about how the gift, the Holy Spirit gift of prophecy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called the Holy Spirit gift of prophecy. This is very deep. And, um, but the office of a prophet is a gift of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, that Christ gave gifts to men. And so in the, when we talked about prophecy, we talked about the fact that the, Paul said that you can all prophesy. So the gift of prophecy and actually the gifts of the Spirit are for the whole entire body of Christ. In fact, that's part of what the uh, gifts of Christ, the fivefold ministry, the apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, part of what they equip the body with is the gifts of the Spirit. And so, so here the gifts of Christ are something that we should all have. We, you're, you're commanded. You're not, it's not a suggestion. You're commanded to, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And the whole body should be fully equipped with every good gift. And the gifts, how many of you understand the gifts aren't for you? They're, they come from you, but they're for people who need healing, who need miracles, who need a prophetic word. And so one of the most frustrating things, in, I think, in, in, the, in Christendom is when somebody uh, needs healing and you didn't pray for the gift of healing, so all you can do is give them a nice prayer of grace instead of a healing. And I, I think if we realize that these gifts that God has given us are their, their love gifts, their God's love language. You know, if you believe there's nine gifts, I th- then I would say there's nine love languages of God. And God loves on people in different ways. If you need a miracle, then he, he loves you by giving you a miracle and so on and so forth. And so we talked a lot about the fact that the gifts of, of the Holy Spirit are, are for all believers. And you can ask for them. You need to ask for them. And you get them by asking for them and so, forth, so on and so forth. Today I want to talk uh, about... The gift, the gift of the gifts of Christ, but specifically, I want to talk about the prophet. And we've been talking a little bit about um, how the body of Christ should actually relate to prophets. Like, how do you relate to a prophet? How do you, how do you, you know, uh, what is the role of a prophet? And we we talked a little bit about um, in Ephesians chapter four how it says that he gave some as apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of service until. We all attain the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And so, um, you know, Bill shared with us uh, in the last couple of years that when Jesus came, he came to fulfill the law. But how many understand he came to fulfill the law and the prophets? He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, Ephesians chapter 4 says that he gave prophets, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, until... We all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the statute that belongs to Christ, to the measure of the statute. In other words, he gave the fivefold ministry, which includes prophets, until we all look like Jesus. Now, I think we can all agree that we don't all look like Jesus yet, which means that we still have prophets. So in what way did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets, and yet we still have prophets? And what I'd like to propose to you is that there's a new prophetic order. Jesus said it this way. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And here's a key word. And you'll be like your father in heaven who does what? He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, this is a real, this is a transitional epic season change. Because in the Old Testament, you'll remember um, Elijah, for instance. Remember, he stopped the rain for three and a half years. He called for a famine. It didn't rain. In fact, it, the, the, the famine was so bad, there was actually cannibalism in Israel. How many of you remember that with King Ahab and so on and so forth? How did he get permission to call for a famine? Because the law, the old, remember he, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The law said that if you, do these good, if you do these good things, if you act righteously, then it will rain, your crops won't fail, your children won't miscarry, and so on and so forth. But if you do evil then it won't rain on you. You will have famines, you will have earthquakes, you will have all these terrible things. And Jesus makes this statement. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. But I say, love those who hate you, pray for those who persecute you, and you'll be like your Father in heaven. And what does he do? He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He makes it rain. When did that happen? In a new covenant. Is this thing making noise or is it just me? He makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the old covenant, God stopped the rain when people were evil. But in the new covenant, He makes it rain on the righteous and He makes it rain on the unrighteous. Do you see that there's a new order? The, the, what, in the Old Testament, the main function of a prophet, I understand there was many functions, but one of the main functions of the prophet was to remind the people that they needed a Savior. And the way the prophet did that is to remind the people that sin deserved to be judged and sinners deserved to, be, to die. The soul that sins shall die. So one of the main roles of the prophet was to, was to prepare the people for a Savior by letting them know that they deserved to be judged. So the main role, one of the main roles of the prophet in the Old Covenant was to prophesy judgment against people who had sinned because the theme of the Old Testament is that the, the soul that sins shall die and we need a Savior. So what would happen if you took an Old Testament prophet, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, what would happen if you were able to take a time machine and take an Old Testament prophet and move him from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant? What would that look like? Well, we have a really interesting verse on that because Malachi 4 says in the last days I'm going to send you come on Elijah the prophet so in, in, the, in the last days I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet and what's Elijah the prophet going to do he's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers now what did he do in the, in the not so last days what did he do in the old covenant in the old covenant he called for a famine he called down fire. He killed the prophets of Baal. And the list goes on and on. So that's what he did under the old order that Jesus fulfilled. But what if, what, what's going to happen when Elijah the prophet comes in the last days in the new covenant? He's going to restore hearts of fathers to sons and sons to fathers. In other words, there's a ministry of reconciliation on the spirit of Elijah. Are you following me? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we know this verse well. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things become new. But the next verse is really just as powerful. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he do it? 
not counting their trespasses against them. Next verse says, and we received the ministry of what? The ministry of reconciliation as if God was begging through us, be reconciled to God. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's not counting their trespasses against them. So what is this new order? In the old order, prophets prophesied judgment against people. But in the new order, prophets uh, judge prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. In the old order, we, pro- we, we judge people. In the new order, we judge prophecy. Are, are you following me? And so I want to talk about uh, a little bit about how prophets work in the new covenant and how we can relate to them. And um, there, there are three uh, dimensions to a prophet. Like, can, any, can anyone be a prophet? No. See, anyone can prophesy. Remember, you're supposed to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And second, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Acts chapter 2. In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even upon your bond servants and, and in those days will I pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. So everybody can move in prophecy. But the office of a prophet is God's choice. God's the one who chooses prophets and prophetesses. In fact, in, in the area of, uh, like, the, uh, Paul, who was an apostle, said, I was chose not by the agency of man, but by the agency of God. How many of you understand that when, when man didn't put you there, man can't take you out? I've shared this before, but, you know, we're moving out of the denominational mindset. When I say denomination, I'm talking about the ism, not... Baptist, Assembly of God. I'm talking about the ism, denominationalism. And, you know, in denominationalism, one of the, the way that we gain authority is we perform. Like we go to seminary, and I'm not against seminary, let me finish. We go to seminary, we get a degree, and therefore we are a pastor. And how many of you understand that if you perform, if you get authority by your gift, in other words, you're the most qualified, that's why you're in charge. Guess what happens when someone more qualified comes into your culture? Can you understand that the very core value that you got, your position through your ability to perform, actually creates a culture where anyone who outperforms you is sabotaged? See, there's a gift of calling and anointing. Your gift gives you your ability. Your calling gives you your identity, and your anointing gives you your purpose. But if you get your leadership position through your gift instead of through your call, then you're always insecure that someone who's more gifted could actually take your place. But if you get your place because of your call, not because of your gift, and I don't mean that you don't have abilities, but I mean that's not, what, that's not the qualifying factor in your life. That's not what qualified you for a leadership position. How many understand that the Apostle Paul was probably one of the most brilliant men of his time? And he was probably one of the most qualified people to write 14 books of the Bible. He was probably one of the most qualified people to be an apostle. And yet he said, "I, I was called not by the agency of man, but by the agency of God. And then when he talked about his qualifications as an apostle, he talked about his weaknesses and his failures. 
In other words, his point is, is that even though I am qualified in my gift to be an apostle, I was not called because of my gift. I was called by the will of God himself. You can't take me out of here because you didn't put me in here. And you don't, you don't scare me when you outgrow me. As a matter of fact, the fruit of my ministry is the fact that you do outgrow me. That holds true with prophets in my mind, too. Like the old paradigm and even the New Testament kind of paradigm that many of us grew up with, where the prophet's the person who has the word of the Lord. They draw large crowds and give the most you know, dramatic prophecies. In my mind, that is an old wineskin. I think the greatest prophetic people are going to actually be people who walk in the gift of prophecy, who are empowered by the prophets, and actually their prophetic gift actually outgrows the prophetic people who are training and equipping them. I don't, I don't think there's a greater compliment than when your sons or daughters, somebody that you poured into, becomes a father or a mother and actually outgrows you and has more profound insight and revelation than you do. As long as they remember who their daddy is and where they send their tithe. I think it's an awesome... <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Um, there's, there's three dimensions of a prophet that I, I want to speak to. One is uh, that they're a gift of Christ. They're a gift of Christ, mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. They themselves are a gift. So in, in, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the gift is the ability to speak, like the gift of prophecy, is the ability to speak prophetically. But the gift of a prophet, the prophet is not just gifted, or she's not just gifted. They are a gift. They themselves are a gift. And so we have this first dimension is that they're a gift. They're, they ha, they're, not just, they're not just gifted. They are a gift to the body of Christ. The, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, pastor, and teacher are all gifts. Christ gave gifts to men. What were the gifts he gave to men? He gave them other men. He gave them other women. He gave them people. The greatest gift besides himself that God could give you was the gift of other people who would bless and serve you and equip you. The second part of the prophet's life is, he's, is he or she is called. And the, the calling describes the identity of the one who's called to be a prophet. Uh, and being a prophet is not something you um, do, it's something you are. So when someone's called to the fivefold ministry, and we'll use prophet here because that's my emphasis today. When someone's called as a prophet, as opposed to, uh, as a, opposed to a prophetic person, in other words... Here we have someone who has the gift of prophecy, a gift of the Holy Spirit. When you have a gift of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't change the way you see the world. Are you following me? You don't own the gift. The Holy Spirit owns the gift. But when you're a prophet, it changes the way you view the world. When God calls you as a prophet, whether it's from birth or whether it's in your born-again experience, and, and both can be true, when God calls you to be a prophet or a prophetess, it changes the way you view the world. It changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you interact with the church. It's not what you do. It's who you are. Are you understanding what I'm saying? It's cellular. It becomes cellular. And you can't separate the, the office. You can't separate the call on your life from who you are. Um, the third dimension of the, 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 of the uh, prophetic uh, ministry is this. So we have the gift that describes your ability and your and your, um, your your ability and your value to the body. You are a gift to the body. 
The second part, your calling describes your identity. It's who you are. It's, it affects the way you see the world. Your, your inner and outer world change. Uh, but the third thing I think is really important, and it's sometimes under, misunderstood, and that is the office of a prophet. The office of a prophet describes the governing responsibility that the prophet carries. The prophet is part of the government of God and therefore has responsibility to help lead people. This is a dimension where the prophet receives his or her mantle or calling. And I think it's really important to realize that there are a lot of people, and we'll, we'll use the prophet, but there are a lot of people in lots of different dimensions of, of supernatural ministry where they have a private um, they have a private commissioning with God where God commissions them, let's say in the wilderness, so to speak, and God calls them, in this case, to be a prophet. But how many of you understand, until you have favor with God and favor with man, you are not a prophet? So David, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God, uh, Samuel comes, the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house and anoints David king. So David is anointed king in 1 Samuel 16. But it's not till 14 to 17 years later that Judah, the tribe of Judah, when Saul dies, they say, hey, how about that? Remember that guy, David, he killed Goliath? I think he's supposed to be king. And he wasn't king. David didn't become king until he had a public commissioning. So he had a private commissioning at his house, just his family, the, uh, uh, the only, you know, the most popular prophet of his day, Samuel comes, anoints him as king, but he's not king until he has a public commissioning. I think that one of the challenges that I see, there's, there are a lot of people, and we'll, we're, again, we're on the subject of prophets, so we'll, we'll beat that drum for a while. There are a lot of prophets who have had a private uh, a commissioning from God. Maybe the Holy Spirit has visited them personally, or maybe they've been in some corner of some church someplace where somebody comes and says, you're called to be a prophet of God. And the worst thing you can do is step out into the church and say, I've called to be a prophet, so uh, you know, if you guys need any help, I'll be over here. And what I watch over and over, and we've watched this dynamic for years, is people will come into our congregation, they're like, they had a private commissioning, and they want to have public authority. And yet, they have, you know, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Until you've received a commissioning from God and man, you are not a prophet. You, you may be called to be a prophet. You may be gifted to be a prophet. But you don't hold the office of a prophet until there's a public commissioning and an acknowledgement from the people who God's already given authority to. That's a say law. See, what happens if you, if you have a private commissioning, but you don't yet have a public one? Well, if you have favor with God, but you don't have favor with man yet, you end up with Joseph. Remember when Joseph had a dream about the, about the, the sheaves bowing down to him and then the sun and the moon? And what did he do? First thing he did is came out, you know, he already knows his brothers hate him. He's like, you won't believe the dream I had last night. I mean, that's a spirit of stupid. Thankfully, Joseph got wiser in prison. You're like, well, that's how he got to the you know, promise. You know, that's how he got to the palace. And I think there, you know, there's only one way into the kingdom, but there are many ways into your destiny, My, personally. I don't think Joseph had to go to prison to actually get into the palace, but I think his stupidity landed him there. If you know your, your father favors you and your brothers hate you, probably not the greatest plan to come out and tell them, hey, you know how bad you hate me? You better be careful because you're all going to be serving me. 
Probably not the wisest plan. What happens if you have favor with man, but you don't yet have favor with God? Well, that's Absalom. How many, how many of you know that there's a lot of people that think that they're supposed to become whatever it is, whatever office gift they have, by running for it? Like they've taken democracy and moved it into the church. Like, I'm the most popular person, therefore, how many of you understand that you can have favor with man and not have favor with God? So the goal is to have both. The goal is to have both, and, um, and the goal is to move in... Uh, Move in the into your destiny at the right time. Um, I, I I spoke about this for a while ago, but there's a difference between having an anointing and having a mantle. And the reason I mention this is because people often come up to people, especially to prophets, I think, and it may happen to other gifts. Uh, uh, you know, fivefold ministers too, but I have people come up to me, this is often, and they'll say, I want your mantle. I'm, I'm like, I don't know, like, you know, <laughs> really have anything else to wear. <laughs> you know, you just want to bring an extra one just in case, you know, it happens to you, you know. And they say, I want your mantle. And for years I was like, you know, I, first of all, I don't know if I have a mantle, and if I did, I don't know what it is. And so I'm not sure I can give it to you. But I would just go, okay, here's my mantle. I'm like, I hope that worked, you know. <laughs> and some years ago, this is probably four years ago, a student was asking me um, in, um, in a question and answer time, what's the difference between someone's anointing, because your anointing gives you your purpose. You know, Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me. And wherever you hear the word anointing, you're going to get something to do. The Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the afflicted, by not the brokenhearted. And so the, the student, I was teaching on anointing that day, and someone said, and it's one of the students raised their hand and said, what's the difference between an anointing and a mantle? Now, I said, hmm, I really don't know. And so, um, so I, you know, next question, <laughs> which I do often, actually, I really, I don't know. I do have an opinion about everything, but I don't have one about that. So I'm driving home, and this is like maybe an hour later. This is really the way it happened. I'm driving home, and the Lord says, would you like to know the difference between the anointing and a mantle? And I'm like, it would have been awesome if you would have told me in front of that student. <laughs> I would have really liked to, you know, sound intelligent. Well, the difference is. And the Lord said, the anointing stays with the man, but the, but the mantle stays with the mission. And he, and he showed me that when... You know, uh, according to Romans 13, all authorities from God, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, all authorities from God, according to Romans 13. In fact, he says you pay taxes because civil leaders are actually servants of God. And he, and he gave me an, uh, an illustration, like when President Bush, for instance, becomes president. Now, he's a, he's a called and gifted guy. I mean, let me put it this way. You don't get to be the president, whether we agree with the presidency or not, I mean, the person who's president or not, uh, please, that's not my issue right now. But you don't, you don't get to be President of the United States and not be a pretty bright, gifted person, whether you, we agree with their opinions or not. But when they, when they become president, when in the inauguration, the Lord showed me that he puts a mantle on the person so that that person has the ability to, to operate in that office under the, under the mantle of God himself. But when that person leaves that office, 
They will still leave with their gifting. They'll still leave with their anointing. They'll still leave with their calling. But the mantle will remain with the mission. So that the next person who comes into office can wear that mantle. And that mantle gives you the ability to act outside of your personhood. Are you following me? So now when people say, can I have your mantle? I'm like, dude, no. If I gave you that, I'd die. I have to keep it till I die. When I die, you know, you come when, I, when I'm ready to die and phone me up and I'll give it to you. But otherwise, if I give it to you, then I'm going to be like totally dysfunctional. I mean, worse than now. So, um, so, so David gets anointed king, but he's not king for several years. He's king after Israel and, and Judah anoints him. Now, prophets have uh, this uh, kind of, uh, um, I call it, I call it, um, what do I call it? I call it trivision. That's what I call it. Tripolar, I was going to say. I call it trivision. Um, they have insight, foresight, and oversight. And different prophets tend to have diff- uh, be stronger in certain areas. Like in- Insight is the ability to understand issues and situations and people's motivations and God's inspiration. So insight is the ability to understand the root issues and situations, people's motivations, and God's inspiration. So insight is like, you know, insight is like what happens when you look through a microscope. Like they tell me that our skin is actually an organism and there's things like living on it. You can't, you couldn't see that unless you had a microscope. And there are, there are prophets and prophetesses who their eye is like a microscope. Like they can see into the depths of people's hearts. They can see into the depths of, 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 of culture. They, they understand the motivations of God's heart, the motivations of people's heart. And they're really awesome at, at uh, diagnosing like what is actually creating culture. And then there's oversight. Um, in fact, let's do the second one. The second one is foresight. Foresight is like the ability to predict the future. So a lot of prophets have an eye like a telescope. They can look into the future and tell you what's coming. Either, they, either, it's, it's, uh, either it's, it's foresight from the standpoint that they can see into the future, or it's, for, or it's foresight in the sense that they can cause the future, like Ezekiel's bones. Can these bones live? And their main prophetic ministry is about the future. It's always calling things that are not as though they are, and that's their main function in the body. And they're, they're always, uh, I think that when that's, when, they're, when, they're, when that's their primary ministry, you often think of prophets maybe not being accurate, because they're like, okay, well, they're calling something, you know, they called out Johnny, and they called him, you know, some kind of amazing person, and you're like, you know Johnny. You're like, Johnny's not amazing. Johnny's a drug addict. But a prophet with a telescope eye sees things not as they are, but as God sees them, and calls things not as they are, but as they should be. And so there's that whole prophetic perspective that is that, that, that foresight, that ability to see into the future. And I'll, just, I'll name the third one. The third one is oversight. And oversight is the ability to understand prophetic context, ecosystems, service roles, and perspectives. Um, Bob, Bob Perry used to have a helicopter, and he flew me over our house. We lived on Olive Street, and we hovered over my house for a few minutes. It was very interesting. Have you ever seen your, uh, the place that you live? Like, how many of you ever flown on a plane into Reading? You look out the windows, and you like, if you can see your house, you're like, Wow, I am really close to the river. It feels like a long walk. It feels like a long drive. 
But when you hover, like we hovered over my house, and he kind of just spun the helicopter around, and we could see 360, and I'm like, it is so different seeing your, your, the place you live in the context of your city. And people that have prophetic oversight have this kind of ability to look at organizations and go, hey, you fit there. You fit, listen, I know what's wrong. You're too far from the river. And they can place people in the context that is right for them. Now, I, I, I want to be careful because whenever we teach anything really about the Spirit, we put things in boxes and people are like, okay, what box do I fit in? The struggle is the Spirit doesn't fit in any of those boxes. So these are great ways to explain the way people see. And there, there are people that, that have strong insight, foresight, and oversight. But I think it's also important to know that you may be a prophetic person and you're like, you know what, I don't get anything about the future, but I know things about, you know, metaphorically, I know about micro things. Like I can see past the skin of people's life and I can see right into the depths of their heart. And you're like, but that doesn't have anything to do with the future, but it does have to do with the way that God, the eye that God's given you. Are you following me? And so um, prophets, according to uh, Amos, says, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. And one of the things we do in the school of the prophets is we teach the prophets that the information God gives you is secret. Like you're secret agents. And one of the things we like to do is tell everybody. You know, when God gives us information, we're like, oh, he told me, I want to tell everybody. And I think that part of where we're going, which I'm going to end with here in the next few minutes, part of where we're going is we need to learn how to keep secrets. We need to learn how God, for, how God can give us insight into the heart, the lives of people. He can give us secret information into the, into the destiny of nations. And we don't get on, you know, on Fox News or on TVN or on, on you know, um, CBN and tell them, hey, God gave me this thing. I'm calling for this. I think there are times, first of all, I think that everything that God tells us should start with a secret. It's a secret. We should get permission from God to be able to share it. I think that we would, I think the Lord would give us so much insight if we knew how to keep secrets. I think it was Bob Jones. I, I know it was Bob Jones. I don't know if I'll get the quote exactly right. But he said, men are known on earth by the information they share, but they're known in heaven by the secrets they keep. A part of the struggle is that um, we, we have, and I'll, I'll just say this. I, I think we all struggle with this on some level, more than, than some people than others, obviously. But we have such a need for significance that it drives us to tell people about the things that God is telling us it's almost like I need you to know that I'm, that I'm friends with a famous guy and that I have information. You know, Billy Graham writes in his book that one of his greatest mistakes was he, the first time he went to see a president, and forgive me, I don't remember which president it was. He's, seen, he's visited so many presidents. But he came out of the Oval Office, and the, of course, obviously, the media was there, and he told the media, I prayed and led the president to Christ. And if I remember correctly, the president wrote him a letter or communicated to him in some way that he did not appreciate what happened in the privacy of his own home 
becoming public information. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's part of something, like, I, I hear it often, and I, I take it as a warning. I've written in my journal several times warnings to myself that when I pray with a congressman or a senator or a mayor or I, I pray with somebody that has public statute, what happens in that room needs to stay between them and us without permission. But we have no idea... I don't think we really have any idea what it's like to live in a fishbowl that some of our political people live in. And, and I, I know we all have our opinions about, you know, who should win elections and all that. I, I don't know how, public pe- how political people survive. Just day in and day out, people scrutinizing everything they do. And so I think, I think as we're moving into this, uh, in this place of influence that we need to... Um, we need to realize that the things that God gives us for people are first secrets. And some, I think, you know, they should be, you need permission to share secrets. Okay, um, I want to kind of finish with this, this part for today. Um, I, I really feel like, in fact, let me just read uh, Romans. Sorry. What am I doing wrong? We'll just read it in the Bible. Romans 13. Let me just read it to you. Romans 13, verse 1 says, Every person is in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not the cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. It is a minister of God for you for good. But if you do, if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For if it is a minister of God, an avenger of those who bring wrath on everyone who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom customs due. Fear to whom fears due. And honor to whom honors due. And I understand that that's not the only verse in the Bible about authority. But I, I want to end with this um, concept. I really feel like Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers... I really feel like the, one of the, word, the prominent words of the Lord that I feel that I'm carrying right now is that, that Ephesians 4 people need to build relationships with Romans 13 people. That civil government and spiritual government need to join hands. And I, I feel like the, the prophets, I feel like what the prophets of old did where David, uh, you know, David wanted to build a temple, for instance. And he had Nathan and Gad in his life. And uh, Fred Haley taught me that Nathan and Gad, his prophet and seer, were actually his cousins. So they grew up together. And Bill made a, a great statement. I think he was also in the conference where he said, in, in, in normal, in natural life, familiarity breeds contempt. But in the kingdom, the more familiar you are with someone, the more you respect them, the more favor you have on them. And you understand that if you read the book of Kings, especially in one setting, that most of the kings had prophets who didn't like them. 
But David had two prophets in his life, a prophet and a seer, who he built a long lifetime relationship with. And I would propose to you that Nathan and, and Gad actually saved David's kingdom. That their relationship, his ability to be accountable to those two men in his life, probably saved his kingship. And so, you know, a couple of examples is David wanted to build a, a, a temple for God. You remember the story. And he comes to Nathan. And remember now, David is named in Acts 3 as a prophet. And he comes to, to, uh, to did I say that right? Yeah. And he comes to Nathan and he says, I want to build, a, you know, I have a house. God doesn't have a house. I'd like to build a house for God. And Nathan's like, that's a great idea. And he walks away and God says, hey, Nate, you didn't ask me about that. He can't build a permanent house for God because he's a man of bloodshed. Now, you understand that David built a tabernacle, which was a temporary structure. But God didn't want a permanent structure to be represented by a man who shed human blood. So he said, your son, Solomon, and remember, Solomon never fought a war. Solomon means peace. My God is peace. Solomon, your son, Solomon, can build this temple, this, this, this temple, but you cannot. And so he comes back and tells David that. And it's interesting. Here's a king who has this lifelong dream of building, building a temple for God. A permanent structure for God, which turns out to be the most expensive building per square foot in human history. And the, and the prophet says, you can't build it. And he says, okay, I won't. And he sets up all the stuff for his son to build it. What I'm getting at is there's something about the way that prophets and kings, if you will, the way apostles and prophets, the way the body of Christ is supposed to relate to prophets. And I understand that there's a new prophetic order, but... Jesus said, if you receive a prophet in the name of a prophet, then you'll receive a prophet's reward. And I want to propose to you that the Lord wants to reestablish a prophetic order. That, that, that prophets will begin to be in the highest places of government. Giving, I'm not talking about necessarily as politicians, but as, but as advisors. I believe that the Lord wants to bring advice to the highest government officials in the land and the prophets begin to be not standing on the outside prophesying against government but be inside guiding and directing and that kings and presidents and prime ministers and, and apostles and, and people in high places I believe the Lord wants to create accountability where these people will actually see crisis coming and be able to avoid those crises with prophetic declarations and by the way, I, I want to say this. I shared in first service. I think I did a better job. But there's a difference between judgments and warnings. I believe in prophetic warnings. I don't believe in prophetic judgments for today. A warning, another word, a, a great example. Let's see. I have it here. A great example is in Guatemala. In 1976, in Guatemala, there was a, a woman. Here it is. There was a woman in Guatemala, Central America, that she saw... In fact, let me just read it to you. Um, there's an amazing testimony of God's grace saving Central America through a prophetic warning vision. In 1976, a woman from Guatemala had a vision of great destruction coming to her country. She predicted that an earthquake would, would happen within the first four or five days of February, about four months from the day she had the vision. She submitted the prophetic vision to her leaders, and they prayed about it and discerned that the vision was from God. In response, the church members humbled themselves before God and cried out for mercy. They slept outside. And let me tell you the rest of the story. They, so they, she has this vision. And the way I understand it is she had a vision of an earthquake, a terrible earthquake, and superimposed over the vision 
was a calendar with February highlighted and the first four days highlighted. So she came to her pastor. She had a really good track record. She came to her pastor and said, you know, I, I think there's going to be a terrible, something terrible happen. I think it's in the first four days. And her pastor went to, I believe it was the, um, the president of Guatemala. I could be wrong. I forgot to write down the details. I'm pretty sure it was, though. And told him what, his, what this prophetic lady had shared. The pastor, I mean, the, pro, the president kind of, you know, blew him off and didn't believe it. So the, the pastor got everybody from February 1st on to all of his congregation. They slept outside. On, at 3.02 in the morning on February 4th, 1976, the deadliest earthquake in the history of Guatemala's uh, shook Guatemala. It killed 22,000 people, injured 74,000. It was 7.5 on the Richter scale. It destroyed most of the city, but not one single person in their church was harmed. At the, uh, Norman Parrish was the pastor of that church. Um, the president of uh, Guatemala went to Norman Parish and said, listen, because you had insight, I'm going to put you in charge of the restoration of our country. Put him in charge. Put the military at his disposal. He had helicopters, everything he needed assigned him. The National Army was given to him, and he led the rebuilding of Guatemala. What happened? Now, they had a warning. Not a judgment. They had a warning. How many understand that earthquakes... That, that, you know, hurricanes, tornadoes, those are natural disasters. I don't mean that they can't be spiritually inspired, but without being spiritually inspired, they're, they're going to happen. And I think that Agabus prophesied there's going to be a famine in the book of Acts. He doesn't relate that the famine is, is caused by anyone's sin. He just says there's going to be a famine. And you know the story. They take an offering for Jerusalem to try to break the famine. They honor their leaders to break this famine. I think that we're learning some stuff about, about warnings. I think we're learning, Benny and, and the whole intercessory team are teaching us that when we have a warning, an earthquake, a, uh, you know, some kind of disaster, catastrophe is coming, I think that we have the power to step in between life and death and say, you're not coming here, you're not, you're, you will go no further, this thing will not happen, and we're learning as friends of God, that warnings are not just like, okay, clear the, listen, don't live in, listen, get out of your houses, leave that area. There's going to be, I think that we've come into this, this next place in God, if you will, where we're going, if, there's a, if God is warning us, He's warning us so we can stop this disaster. And Jesus gave us several examples of that. When He stepped out on a boat, and there was a terrible storm, and Jesus calmed the storm. He didn't like calm the people, He calmed the storm. I think it's awesome that we have the ministry of, uh, uh, you know, of reconciliation and we have the ministry of uh, prophecy which helps to comfort people. And we have a comforter. And I think we've relied completely. I mean, our ministry has been comforting people who've been in disasters instead of stopping disasters. But what would happen if we became people that we related to kings and prime ministers and, and, uh, and presidents and, and mayors and governors? You get the picture. And, and that, that on a regular basis that we began to, to warn and to guide and to lead our country into... I mean, how many lives would be saved if we, if we as, as prophets and prophetesses, stood in the highest places on the plant and in the, in the land, and we began to... When, when there's going to be a disaster, instead of telling our president there's going to be a disaster, we began to cut it off. We began to say, this will not happen on my shift. 
You know, Hezekiah has this has the king of Assyria who hates him. When Hezekiah turns to God, has, uh, this, uh, the king of Assyria begins to hate him, and, and he begins to you know, destroy cities and all around him and nations all around him. Hezekiah is totally terrified. You know, he's a new king. And he, and he sends servants to Isaiah and says, What should I do? And Isaiah says, gives him a prophetic word. The king of Assyria is going to hear a sound in his city and he's going back home and on the way he'll fall. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And don't, you don't have to worry about massing an army. God has protected you. And he spoke what was not as though it was and he called into being the angelic realm and protected that country. I really feel like there's something about the way that kings and, and, and prophets, if you will, and I understand, I'm using that as a metaphor, but there's something about the way the prophetic, the prophetic ministry is moving now back into its proper place of government so that we can begin to not just help govern churches, but that we can begin to govern cities, that we can begin to govern nations, that we can call things that are not as though they are. We can protect presidents and we can give insight and wisdom to people in high places and begin to cut off um, tre- treachery and, and terror. And I, I really feel like uh, prophets are God's secret weapons. I really do. It, you know, in, um, when um, I think it was the Assyrians again were against uh, one of the kings, Elijah kept telling the king where the, where the enemy king was going to attack at. And finally the enemy king um, says to his men, one of you are a traitor. You're feeding information to the king of Israel. And one of his servants says, boss, listen, we're not traitors. The guy's got a prophet over there. And whatever you whisper in your bedroom, the Lord, God tells him, and he tells the king. That's why we can't get to the king, because there is no secrets from this prophet guy. And the king goes, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll take out a secret weapon. We'll go kill him. So they sent a company of men, 50 guys go to, go to get, I think it was, was it Elijah? I think it was Elisha. 50 guys go to get him and what happens? Fire falls down. And then he sends another 50, you know, Cajun cooking. <laughs> Finally the king, you know, it's like, uh, this isn't working. I, I think there's something about the connection that God wants to begin to breed a prophetic order that actually disciples nations so that economic crisis like a recession is actually cut off because like Joseph who says to the king, hey, that dream you had, that's about our economy. You're going to have seven really good years. Stock market's going to go like crazy. But then there's going to be a crash. And it's going to last for seven years. And if you don't do something about that, everyone in your nation is going to starve. And the king's all, "Um, what do I do about that? And how many of you understand that Joseph was a prophet who spoke into the economy of Egypt and saved the Egyptian economy? And I wonder what would happen if we began to release prophets in every realm of society so that we're not just prophesying to the if you will, the religious realm, and I'm using the word religion in a positive way, in the religious realm, but that we let the prophets out of the box. And they began to prophesy into the economy, into 
into the security, national security, homeland security. They begin to prophesy. How about this? That they begin to prophesy into social justice stuff so that sons and daughters returning home has a strategy and a structure and that we're called back out of this global orphanage into a family, not just in the church, but globally. That we begin to develop structures where we take people out of orphanages and put them in families. And when the whole mentality of the country shifts because prophets are speaking to kings and the main ministry of the prophet in this decade, in this, in this epic season, is the restoration of family. I want to pray that over you. Would you stand? You may be bored, but I like this stuff. (laughs) I guess I inspired you to encourage me. Maybe my love language is clapping or something. I don't know. But I want to pray. I want to pray right now that we would have a culture, a prophetic culture that would inspire people into righteousness, into reconciliation. And so I just want you to put your hands out right here. And that just says, you know, I'm available. I'm available. And, I, and Holy Spirit, I just thank you right now that you are calling the body of Christ out of the Ark of the Covenant. You're ripping, you're ripping the veil and you're releasing your people into the darkest places, into the most glorious places into every realm of society. And I pray right now that there would be a prophetic mantle released. A mantle. Remember, a mantle's for a mission. A prophetic mantle released over the bride. That she could be like Esther. And I pray for people that are watching by I Bethel TV and people who will watch this later on, that there would be a mantle released over the body of Christ and that kings would begin to extend the scepter to the bride. Say, come on in here and influence me. Come on in here and talk to me about the intimate things that you've been hearing. And Lord, I pray right now. I just I have this picture in my mind. I know it's simple, but I have this picture of presidents, prime ministers, mayors, governors extending the scepter to the to Esther, to the bride. Even though Esther doesn't think she's being invited, she's afraid. Remember this? Remember she's afraid. She tells Mordecai, "I haven't been summoned for a month, I, I don't. She's got insecurity about being summoned into the, into the chamber of the king. But when she walks in, the king's excited to see her. Listen, I'm, you understand? I'm telling you the story of Esther. I'm giving you a prophetic word right now. That we think that kings are trying to keep us out, but there's a change. That the king is having dreams. The king is having visions. The king is saying, "I." Well, I I'm hungry for Esther. You know, I haven't invited her in here for a long time. I wonder if she feels rejected. I just, I feel like the kings, queens, people in prominent places of business, and not just politics, but just in all kinds of places of authority, like we read in Romans 13, that those, those kings are extending scepters. And they're like, I'm so glad to see you. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? And Lord, I thank you that you 
are giving the body of the bride of Christ influence with kings, with presidents, with prime ministers. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a word, <laughs> that you would tell us what to say, that you would give us insight and wisdom and foresight, and that we would, we would, when we get into the palace, we wouldn't be stunned by the fact that we're in there and want to take pictures with the president. We'd actually feel like we're an ambassador of the kingdom. I've come as an ambassador of the king of kings. You're a king, he's king over. And I'm an ambassador to the king of kings. And this is what the king of kings says to you. Thus and thus. And Lord, let us be blessing, a blessing to the nations. Let us be hope for the nations. When people think of Christians, let them think, those people are the most positive, happy people on the planet. I don't know if I agree with their politics, but they sure are happy. They're sure hopeful. Lord, I just release hope that you, you, you said you called yourself the hope of the nations. Therefore, we are the hope of the nations. Lord, we break the power of hopelessness. We break the power of despair. Yeah, we reject depression and recession. <laughs> they are related, you know. I release you from the spirit of recession. In Jesus' name. Yeah, we want the spirit of... Oh, I forget. <laughs> I was going to make up a word. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's one in the dictionary, though. Uh, yeah. Subsession. You know, when you keep going. Sex. Yeah, that's it. Danny's going to close, and he'll help me with that. Lord, we just released Danny's word over these people. In Jesus' name. Danny, come and finish this.